Europe emerge stronger after Ukraine. This is our next panel. I want to welcome all of you once again. I also want to thank the Delphi Economic Forum for um, allowing us to do this panel. I think it's important, uh, an important discussion. Um, and um, um, our uh, guest, uh, Alexander Stubb, of course, well, basically needs no introduction, former Prime Minister of Finland now at the European University Institute, obviously someone with a great wealth uh, of knowledge. Um, and Alex and I have decided that we're going to have a no-holds-barred conversation. He was saying I'm going to grill him. So um, I think, why don't we just start that way? Will Europe emerge stronger after Ukraine? I would say it's not looking good, is it? Uh, I'm the eternal optimist, so I say I actually think it is looking quite good. Uh, you know, I'm an EU nerd. I've been doing this stuff for the better part of 30 years, starting all the way at the College of Europe in Bruges. And I would basically make the argument that I've never seen the European Union as united as it is right now at this particular moment. There's nothing that unifies you more than a common enemy. But then, then, then we need to take a look at what's going mm -hmm. on, right? You have, um, as far as Ukraine is concerned, Poland wants to do more. Mm -hmm. France seems to be doing its own thing, cozying up to China, goes, you yeah. know, saying it doesn't want to uh, be the vassal of the United States anymore, whereas the Germans are saying they're basically doing nothing without the United States. Yeah, but I think what we need to do is to look at the big picture. I mean, the ripple effects are always going to be there. You know, Kathy Ashton is sitting here. She knows exactly what it's trying to run Mission Impossible, a European joint foreign policy. But look at the big picture. You know, 10 to 11 rounds of sanctions, converting the peace facility into basically a military finance instrument, providing financial aid, providing military aid, and having a common European foreign policy for a long time. Yeah, you're going to have different views. You know, the Poles want to go a little bit faster. The French want to, well, be French. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, you know, someone else might want to slow things down a little bit. But I think, you know, if we look at it, I think the Baltics and Poland were on the right side of history on this one. And that's why we're following their suit. Just because the traditional Franco-German axis is not working doesn't mean that Europe is do you broken. Think, do you think that the Europeans would have taken these steps if the U.S. hadn't led the way, though? As, as always is the case in, in conflicts well, like these. Well, you know, I, I guess the saying goes that Europe was dependent on Russian energy, American security, and Chinese economy. Now, after this, we can drop uh, the Russian energy part. Certainly... American engagement uh, was the tipping point that drove us. But I have to say that after a couple of days of, of back and forth, I mean, you know, the determination and the speed and efficiency of the European Union and its unity has been remarkable. Mm. And I think, you know, credit, credit I think, to, to Ursula von der Leyen, also Josep Borrell, I think one of the tipping points that people forget is actually, do you remember that, that uh, Lavrov, sent this letter to all the OSCE countries about a new European security system. And what did Borrell do? He got all the EU foreign ministers together and answered that letter together. Yeah, but you have Ursula von der Leyen, who um, she has done a lot, and she is, she's obviously completely positioned the European Union saying they stand behind Ukraine, they need to do more. But on the other hand, she also said a while ago that the EU needs to get together and provide ammo for Ukraine. And now, once again, the e European Union is not, or the European states are not capable of doing that. They still have no agreement to do that because the Poles want to do it quickly. The French want to produce only ammo in uh, EU countries. And, and the Ukrainians are dying. Okay, well, you know, rewind to 2008, the war in Georgia. I was mediating peace together with, uh, with Bernard Kushner. 
if someone would, from the European Union, at the time, I think it would have been Solana, come out and said, ah, we need to provide with ammo, people would have looked, are you crazy? This is, I think, a tectonic shift. I mean, the fact that the uh, head of foreign policy for the European Union and the president of the European Union can basically give directions and suggestions to member states that they need to provide military equipment to country X, Y, and Z is already huge. So that's why I'm saying, it's not going to be perfect. We are united, and of course, we're not going to continue to be as united. Do you but think that the European shift. countries have realized that now that there's a real war going on next door, that right now is showtime, and they need to, they need to get real about defense? Do you think that they understand that? Because if you look at a lot of the interventions that we've had in the past, if it was the war against ISIS, uh, for instance, long terms in Afghanistan, you know, we were, I was flying over, uh, over um, I think it was Syria or Iraq with the, US, uh, with the US tanker plane, and they were saying a lot of these European countries, they basically just fly around here. They don't do anything. They're just there for show. Mm. But now they need to get real. Well, yeah, no, I, I went to see our troops in Afghanistan as well, and I, it didn't look like they were just flying around. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think you know what basically happened, as I said, when you have a common enemy, it forces you to deal with a particular matter. That's why the leadership has been very much on the eastern flank of Europe mm -hmm. and also in northeastern Europe. It becomes very real. It unifies us in a way in which it hasn't before. You could say that that sort of glue has to do with fear, and in many cases it has been existential. I sometimes wonder, and what keeps me up at night is that what would have happened if Putin would have walked into Kiev in 48 hours, mm. as had been predicted, and the Ukrainians would not have been able to push back. Then I think the West would have looked very weak, but this actually now gave us a boost of uh, you know, steroids or whatever you want to call it. Do you think that um, the things that, for instance, Olaf Scholz says, or, or other um, EU leaders say as well, that they're going to keep providing Ukraine with help for as long as is necessary, is correct, is true, and is it true if there's a different yeah. president in the United States? Mm. I mean, I guess a twofold question. The first one is on, on, on German and German foreign policy. I mean, you know, for a country like Finland, it was very easy to switch tack and apply for NATO membership. Because for us, foreign security policy was never ideological or ingrained in the cultural psyche and backbone of who we were. It was always existential. For Germany to even talk about Zeitenwende, I think it's huge. Okay, then you can argue it's been a bit of a Zeitenslalom, but mm. you know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of beside the point. But I think uh, what Schultz is doing, he's doing with honesty and integrity. Whether we can hold that line for very long, I don't know. I actually think, and we talked about this a little bit in our prep as well, perhaps we're in a situation whereby we'll have to see what the spring offensive brings, and then after that there might be a ceasefire. Then the American issue, yes, of course, it's always in the back of our mind. Having said that, I haven't seen the transatlantic partnership as strong as this since the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And you think that um, countries like... Finland, countries like Greece, might step up a little more and give a few more tanks to Ukraine as well. Because the, if, especially Finland, before the tank deal was announced, the Finns were, were talking quite a big game, talking about how they would contribute. And now I think it's three mine-rolling Leopard A2, yeah. A4s. Yeah, I think, I mean, Finland, first of all, has one of the largest militaries and the strongest 
equipment in, in, in Europe. Mm. I, mean, I think we have 280 tanks. If you take uh, armored vehicles on top of that, we're a little bit over 1,000, of course, because Patria uh, provides them. Uh, we also have 62 F-18s, just bought uh, 64 F-35s. Um, you know, I'm very reluctant to say anything because, uh, you know, it was a government position and I am not in that government. Um, I think it's very important in these situations not to oversell, to say that you will be giving more than you actually end up giving because then a lot of people end up being disappointed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and do you think that uh, Greece at some point should start? Well, I'm not going to give well, advice. Greece yeah, has a lot yeah, of a lot yeah. of leopard twos, and uh, yeah. Well, you know, we both have a blue and white flag, but mm. I ain't going to be giving any advice <laughs> to you know Mitsotakis but it's, before but it's the very, elections. But it is actually the, the reason I'm asking this question, though, yeah. is that for all this talk of Europe becoming stronger, Europe becoming more coherent, it still seems as though European countries do not trust in the security that they have here. Finland is well, now a member of NATO, so has that security blanket. Greece is obviously a member of NATO, so it really doesn't have to fear that it's yeah. going to have a large-scale attack coming from Turkey. Yeah, but I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I think the, the sort of trap that we fall into is to think that the European Union or NATO or security cooperation in the West is some kind of a utopia where everything is going to, you know, click into place with military precision at the snap of a finger. It's never like that. You know, we always look at our interests and then we try to see what works out. I keep on saying the European Union always advances in three phases. Crisis, chaos, suboptimal solution. <laughs> and, you know, when, when we start with that understanding, uh, then I think it's much easier to live with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you think that that's, that is going to, um, that's going to continue to well, be the case? Because the, mm. the one thing that, that always gets to me in this discussion is that you feel that, for instance, a country like Germany, um, and Olaf Scholz seems to have made clear in this tank deal to get the Leopard 2s, which obviously is a big step for them, that Germany doesn't trust Article 5 of NATO. And other countries seem to be doing the same. Olaf Scholz went to the United States president and said, I am only going to allow countries to give these tanks to Ukraine if you give Abrams to the Ukrainians as well, which the U.S. had said. The Ukrainians really can't use Abrams very well on the battlefield because they're a maintenance disaster. It, it's simply not suited for a country that doesn't have the, the kind of maintenance that, that the U.S. has. But clearly, Olaf Scholz doesn't trust Article 5, and clearly well, other countries don't I mean, trust I, it as well. I would give Olaf Scholz a little bit more credit in the sense that he just wanted to cover his back and make sure, because to a certain extent, Germany is pretty close to the front line uh, and has been descaling. Uh, his military over the years. And now what he wanted to do was to make sure that an issue which became hugely symbolic, of course practical as well, in Europe, but more particularly in Germany with the Leopard tanks, that everyone else would provide as well. And, you know, I could detect this, and it's easy to do it with, you know, academic Birkenstocks on, but, <laughs> but you know, I was noticing that everyone was sort of pointing the finger, why is Germany not providing Leopards? Mm. And then when Germany said, okay, here they are, what did everybody, the everybody, everybody, <laughs> crickets okay, well, in the room. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's not, you know, it's a give and take. But I think we need to look at the base case here. I think European security has been now permanently changed. Mm. And we will see a divided Europe for the foreseeable future, an isolated Russia from the West and 44 uh, European states on the other side of the new Iron Curtain. Mm. And that's the base case that we have to start with. Um, you say that uh, European security has, has changed and, and won't ever be the same as before, but are they willing to put 
their money where their mouth is. I mean, you have countries like Greece, obviously, that spend a lot of money on defense. But the Germans, for the, yeah. for the what do you call the, the Seiten Slalom, Seiten slalom yeah. <laughs> the Seiten Slalom means they haven't actually increased their defense budget, and they put forward 100 billion euros to modernize their military and have allocated exactly zero euros of that money so far. Yeah, I, I, you know, I do think that th there has been and will continue to be a shift more towards the hardware of military. There was an earlier panel here talking about the weaponization of everything. Because I think we live in a world in which history didn't end as many of us thought, mm -hmm. believed, and wanted uh, to happen. So we live in a much harsher world. Uh, so you're going to start seeing a shift of European countries more towards the 2% mark uh, and the rest of it. But it's, you, know, you can always find then differences in the timeline, that, that's for sure. I mean, Finland did the right thing, I think, in the sense that we, we always built our security policy on idealism and realism. Mm -hmm. Idealism was that we wanted bona fide to cooperate and trade with the Russians. And we believed in the core of European integration, which means that interdependence and exchange... And you built a very, a very yeah. strong and capable yeah. military. Yeah. And, and, but, but then the realistic side was that, okay, let's have 900,000 in reserves, let's have 280,000 mm. that we can mobilize at wartime. And it's not exactly that we're doing that because of Stockholm, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Now, unlike, you know, Greece is not exactly defending itself from Albania either, you know? No, it's not. But I mean, Greece obviously has a very yeah. real security conflict yeah. ongoing with, with Turkey all the time. Yeah. So, so that's understandable. At the same time, I'm sure that your Ukrainians would love some of those leopard tanks. Um, the new he's, year... You know, he's German, so that's why he talks about the leopard tanks all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a big elephant in the room, yeah. isn't it? Um, uh, this new Europe, which you say is or believe is going to or is already emerging stronger, who's leading it? I don't think anyone... Because anybody, that axis yeah. of Berlin and, and, yeah. and Paris doesn't you know, seem to be yeah, the sort of center I mean, of the I, I think in international relations and in world politics, we try to simplify things. Um, and we have this sort of leadership fetish. We mm. kind of think that every order in the world should be led by someone. But I think Europe has been a good example and laboratory of somewhere where we can talk about a leadership of the Franco-German axis or the leadership in the persona of Angela Merkel, or now actually the leadership of Ursula von der Leyen. But in reality, of course, it's much more complex. And of course, if I branch out, and I'm working on a book on the New World Disorder, so bear with me a second. Mm -hmm. I think that we are witnessing a world which is not as it used to be during the Cold War bipolar, nor unipolar as it was right after the Cold War, but it's multipolar. And when you have a multipolar world, instead of having one world order, the liberal world order, which we're used to since the end of, of World War II, we will have multiple different orders in different sections. And this is the new sort of uh, world order that's emerging. Can it's a bit Europe, confusing. That, that's, that's a very interesting point. Can Europe actually play a significant role in yeah. a multipolar world, though, if Europe does not have the hard power to back that up. Yes, it Because can. it is, it's yeah. a very strong economic player, but at yeah. the same time, when it comes to, 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 to actual hard power, it seems as though yeah. the, uh, the European nations shy away from that. They don't yeah. want that responsibility. It's, it's a super good point, but let's simplify then. And here I'm paraphrasing a little bit Ian Bremer, who's a good friend of mine, It does a lot of the analysis. So you could have one order, which is a security order. Then there, of course, you still have the United States, the only one that has military global reach and can send stuff immediately everywhere. 
Then you have a second order, which is an economic one. That one will have many different orders. I'll come back to that in a second. And then the third order that you might have is a technological one. And there the question is, is it state-based or is it company-based? So the tech side is going to be the super interesting. But on the economic order, here's my, my thesis. I think Europe needs to start driving a more, and Cassie is going to laugh at this, dignified foreign policy which basically means that we have to stop taking the moral high ground and establishing conditionality with the rest of the world. I think the war in Ukraine has done a game, been a game changer because it forced the world to be against for or somewhere in between. And I think the global south will actually decide the new world order. Mm. And the Chinese and the Russians are playing much better with the global south. Might be a little bit transactional, that's fine. But we are way too arrogant, way too moralistic. Yeah. And if we don't watch out, we're going to lose the whole liberal world order because the transactional cost for the global south is much better in the global Doesn't east. Europe have to find a sort of coherency which within yeah. its foreign policies yeah. first, though? Because Trade. I'm sure that you know, if, you, if you talk to folks in Greece, I think that especially if you look back uh, 10 years at, at the debt crisis here, I think a lot of yeah. people wouldn't see Angela yeah. Merkel as a savior, but yeah, more yeah. as someone who is trying to impose rules uh, mm. on another country and, and being quite condescending yeah. at that. Well, I remember... <clears throat> I don't want to talk about Germany. Yes. We can talk about Holland and other no, countries no, no, as well. No, 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 but I mean, you know, here's my... One of my best friends nowadays is actually George Papa Constantino, with whom I work uh, at the European University Institute. And of course, uh, during the financial crisis, we were on different sides, sides of the fence. And we've compared a lot of notes. You know, why did it go the way in which it did? Why did the, uh, you know, Northern Europe take the moral high ground? Why did it impose such tough conditionality? And it's really difficult to say. Did we learn our lessons? I don't know. Mario Nava hopes that we've learned our lessons. Uh, I think we have, but it depends on the nature of the crisis. Something like COVID, we realize it's an externality. We're in this together. Something like a war in Ukraine, we realize it's an externality, we have a common enemy, we are in it together. Something like a financial crisis or a migratory crisis is too transactional, it's too zero-sum, and then you have to defend your own corner. Did we do it the right way? I, I, I would argue no. Mm -hmm. uh, did we learn from it? I, I hope so. Or if we didn't, then uh, George hasn't been convincing enough in my direction. <laughs> Um, do you think that Europe, if it, if it does become more um, coherent and if this uh, and it becomes stronger, at some point will play a role in ending the war in Ukraine? Because yeah, I mean, well, we've heard here, and we had obviously Ukrainian panelists before saying yeah. there needs to be a military victory. But even a yeah. even even a strong military showing at some point will lead to people being at yeah. a negotiating table. Well, this is kind of Fred, where I I, I want to hear more of your view because you've been on the ground there all the time. And, and I, I really don't know what the end game of this is going to be. The way in which I put it in my brain is to say that we'll see a spring offensive. Mm. And if that offensive reaches a certain goal, I don't know, the bridges go into the Crimean Peninsula, whatever, then perhaps there's an opportunity to discuss peace. Right now we are in a difficult situation because in Europe it's almost as if you can't talk about peace. Mm. Our narrative is the Ukrainians decide how they define peace. If they want it to be the borders of 1991, then so be it, and we help them to the last man and woman. But realities will hit at some stage. So I throw it in your direction. Where do you see peace coming? Well, um, 
I've been to Ukraine a bunch of times in the last couple of months, and, and um, you know, if you if you look on the battlefield, especially in places like Bakhmut, and we spent a lot of time there, the Ukrainians obviously had been on the back foot, but at the same time, you do feel that absolute will to win. And then, you know, this morning once again, you had a massive attack on Ukrainian cities with Russian missiles, and the the the, the sort of impression that I've been getting, I think others have been getting as well, is with every bomb that drops on Ukrainian cities the Ukrainian nation becomes stronger, actually, yeah. because they're not backing down. They're continuing to fend the Russians off. And, I, and, and it does seem as though they are willing to go all the way, depending on the help that they get. Not only depending on that, but... Can they? Can they? This is, I mean, you know, we're here, we're here here yeah. in Delphi, you know, we go and we listen to Petraeus. I was asking the Oracle stuff. before. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. said, ask, ask yeah. Alexander Stubb. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very hard to say whether or not they can go all the way, you know, at some point. Um, uh, it's obviously the, the Russians are a very capable military. They're a very strong military. They've dug in. Um, I think all this talk about you know them being completely disorganized is not is mm. not correct. Mm. Um, it will be a very tough fight. Yeah. That is that is. Still I mean, I never want to over rationalize the past or use examples from the past. But you will recall that you know we had a 105-day winter war mm. with the Russians uh, in 1939 to 1940, and then a war of continuation. And our experience at the time was that during the Winter War, we were able to hold back, even had the possibility of walking towards Leningrad at the time, mm. uh, but didn't. But then when the Russians regrouped, we kind of stood no chance and ended up losing 10% of our territory. But doesn't that mean that, um, to get back to, 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 yeah. to, to the EU and to Europe, doesn't Europe have to project more strength when it comes to Russia? Don't leaders have to come out and say, look, that ammo is coming. That ammo is being produced. The tanks are coming. And not 61 or however many they're doing, 601. Yeah, definitely. Isn't, isn't that, yeah. Isn't that yeah. uh, the, the I kind guess, of thing that you need to project, uh, yeah. that there is a unity and that this is not going to stop? Because Europe is obviously yeah. a very strong industrial player. And I think there was someone in the panel before saying Russia can't win a conventional war against NATO. Russia certainly can't outproduce Europe. Yeah. Um, as far as military hardware or anything. Well, else. probably two points and I guess lessons to be learned. The first one is that the reason that Putin did what he did was that Europe and I guess the United States hadn't provided a strong enough deterrence against Russia in favor of Ukraine. After the war in Georgia, after the annexation of Crimea, Putin thought he could just walk in, the West will just lift up its hand. Second one, you have to put your money where your mouth is. If we don't have the ammo, don't overpromise. Mm. If we have the ammo, promise that you can give it. A country like Finland needs to little bit cover its own back as well. So in other words, we can't deplete the storage of stuff that we might need to defend ourselves. Uh, but yes, we need to produce and provide as much as we can, whether it's realistic at this particular stage. You know, my know-how doesn't go that far. Mm. Okay. It's the end of our time, unfortunately, although I'd love to talk to you for another couple of hours. Maybe we'll get the chance. I want to thank everybody for listening in and, uh, and being here. And once again, thank the Delphi Economic Forum for, for hosting this panel. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Thank you.